Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What is up? My name's Emily Kaufman, bringing you a brand new episode of Live Your Personal Best. So in case you didn't know, this June will be the 50th anniversary of Title IX, basically granting women more positions in sports, in high school, and colleges. And for some of us, me included, I was born after Title IX went into effect. We can't picture, you know, these huge strides that women have really made within the past 10 years, 15 years, 20, and back to when Title IX happened. Talking with Danielle today all about the history of women in fitness, in exercising, how it got popularized, how we started breaking stereotypes, how there's more research around females now instead of just males. And so I love this conversation with her because just through it, it really opens your eyes of how not that long ago these things were for us. Like when your parents were born, I bet that sports bras weren't invented because Danielle shares with us the year that sports bras were invented and it blew my mind. So with that, before we jump in, I did just want to mention my book Elite to Everyday Athlete is something that I think goes hand in hand with what we're talking about here with progress in the fitness space. In my book, we talk about how to go from being a competitive athlete to someone who's more of an everyday athlete. And I know that that's always a great reminder for me because as I was talking to Danielle about all these different trailblazers in women's fitness and in women's sports, sometimes you feel like there's not a space for you if you aren't competing anymore or you're not part of a team or you don't have a goal. And I'm here to say that's not true and that we can be doing so much just as everyday athletes, just enjoying movement, redefining our goals and success. So if that sounds like something you're interested, definitely go check out the book, Elite to Everyday Athlete. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Nobles, and I'll link it right down below. And with that, let's get started. What's up and welcome to the Live Your Personal Best podcast. This is the place where I help current and former athletes like you to show up confidently in the gym and in life. I'm your host, Emily Kaufman, a former Division I athlete and author of Elite to Everyday Athlete. I'm going to show you how to stay motivated in reaching your goals and how to have more fun doing it. So let's sweat it out and start living your personal best. Hey guys, today we are joined by Danielle Friedman, who's the author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World, which she's on today to talk with us about. I'm so excited that you're here, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me on, Emily. Yeah. So as you've mentioned, you know, this is one of the first books about women's history in fitness and exercise. So what inspired you to write on this topic? Like it's not a popular one that people are talking about. Yeah. Well, actually that sort of the fact that it wasn't a popular topic that people were talking about was one of the things that drew me to it. I'm a women's health journalist, a longtime health reporter, culture reporter, and the book really began, it was a very kind of organic process. Um, I have been 
been a runner my whole life, but I had never really done any boutique fitness. And about five years ago, when I was getting ready for my wedding, it was a very kind of predictable reason. Um, I was I was kind of lured inside my first bar studio, which was my first boutique fitness studio. And I became, I couldn't kind of take my feminist journalist hat off <laughs> while doing the workout. I loved how strong it made me feel, but I also became really curious about um, the subculture. And, and I noticed that a lot of the moves were sort of like surprisingly sexual. And I, I was just like, what's this all about? So I started looking into the history of where bar came from. And I stumbled on the story of Lottie Burke, the woman who invented it in the 1950s. And that basically just led me to this larger story of the rise and evolution of women's fitness. And I, I really couldn't believe that there wasn't already a book, you know, one sort of cohesive narrative that told the story of how this country really transformed from kind of shunning vigorous exercise and movement for women to the world we live in today. Yeah, that's awesome. I recently had this marathoner on, her name is Vanessa, and she was one of the first female marathoners. Like she was there when I first got introduced into Olympics. And so it's really interesting, you know, hearing her perspective of running becoming popularized for women. But how did exercise and fitness start with women? Like, was it running? Like what popularized people to be like, oh, I'm a woman. I can be in the gym too. Yeah, great question. And, and running was definitely part of it. I will say I, I loved researching the history of women's running. It's, it's, it's kind of a shocking history, which I can talk more about. But so it's helpful to know kind of the state of things when, when, the women's fitness movement really began to take off. So it was, it was really late 1950s, 1960s. It was the post-World War II era when gender norms were really strictly enforced and women really cared a lot about being perceived as ladylike. And similarly, you know, men cared a lot about being perceived as, as masculine. And to a large extent, like being a man meant being strong and being a woman meant being being delicate and dainty and also just sort of deferring to the, the men in her life. So when you think about that climate, it, the idea that a woman would just use her spare time, whatever, you know, whatever spare little spare time she had to build muscle or to train or, you know, to, to cultivate strength was really, that would have been seen. And it was seen as really radical. So there were a small group of early contemporary fitness, you know, pioneers and evangelists who began to, who began to basically preach the message that um, women could really benefit from vigorous, strenuous movement. And that, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't unladylike. The, the flip side of that is that exercise began to be sold as a beauty tool, you know, as a way to develop this aspirational physique. But um, which was a that's a theme throughout my whole book, looking at how that those kind of dual messages of movement for strength and movement for appearance, you know, have have been so intertwined. But um, the 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 short <laughs> continuation of that answer is just that from those early fitness evangelists, we got into aerobic dancing in the really in the 1970s which led to running or which kind of helped to, I should say, like there, there were these 
they each fueled each other, but um, the running women's running boom sort of came after. And then we saw the rise of women's weightlifting and women in the gym. And all of these things were also fueled by both the rise of the women's movement, um, you know, which encouraged women to defy the idea that they were the weaker sex, both literally and figuratively, and increasing um, an, a, a growing body of research showing that that exercise wouldn't damage a woman's body as it used to be believed, but would actually benefit her. Yeah, that's crazy. You said, you know, this started in the 1950s, 1960s. So I'm thinking and I'm like, you know, that's when my grandmother was my age. And now here I am. And I was a division one athlete and it paid for my college tuition. And I'm sure at that point, you know, like they were still not even going into the gyms. It was still, you know, they were these beliefs that women didn't belong there versus just what, like 50 years later. Now here we are like being professional athletes. So I can't believe how fast that progressed. Yeah, absolutely. That was, and that was one of the most shocking aspects of this topic, just how recent, relatively recent this history is. Yeah. Not only were women not really going into gyms in the sixties, but gyms for women like barely existed. You know, a lot of the, 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 and I mean, the truth is that the, the gym, as we think of it today, didn't exist in the same way for men either, but the, the gyms that didn't exist often didn't have, you know, women's restrooms or locker rooms because they weren't, they were only meant for men. And occasionally they would have ladies days, you know, because it was seen as kind of inappropriate for women and men to like sweat next to each other in the gym. But the idea, you know, like, like we were saying that a woman would just decide to go lift at the gym for a little while was, I mean, beyond kind of radical and would have been seen as really subversive as well. Yeah. Well, I heard you mention in another interview that you did too uh, about sports bras. And when those were introduced, I can't believe like they were invented in what, like 1970s. Yeah, it was invented. The sports bra was invented in 1977 and you know, came to market in 1978, which again is just so relatively recent, you know, and it, it really speaks to kind of how little, well, both to how little women were moving vigorously until that point, but also um, it reflected, you know, it was kind of like um, necessity was the mother of invention. It really reflected the explosion in women's movement that was happening at that time. Yeah. Cause we think about it. Like I, I can't picture a time when, you know, I didn't know what a sports bra was or I didn't have to train without it, but then, you know, it brings me back to present day too. So Lululemon just last month, they launched their first ever sneaker where they advertise it as like the first sneaker designed for females. Like, it's not like, okay, we created this one for males or like we, studied on them or did the research. And so it's like, oh, I can't believe, you know, we still are at this point where there's stuff that's not female centered and like, we're still creating it for us. Yeah. It is funny, you know, having studied history because like, you know, we see these, these sort of statements over and over of like the first, this, the first that. And I'm, when I hear that about Lululemon, I'm thinking about how like in the 1970s, Nike made the first claim, you know, and they had all of these, or, uh, these the first claim of inventing a sneaker for women. They had all of these sort of um, over the top ads about how their sneaker would, would liberate women and like everything, everything old is new again, everything new is old again. <laughs> and, um, but, but I think that that is especially true 
the point that you made is especially true when it comes to just what we know about exercise and women's health and women's bodies, you know, there's still like, there's still sort of some controversy around, for example, like women exercising during pregnancy or postpartum. And we've come such a long way, but there is still such a long way still to go when it comes to, you know, the science and the research and even just the cultural acceptance of, of women's, uh, you know, potential and, and what women's strength can really mean. Yeah. So when you were researching for this book, what kind of surprised you the most? Well, it's funny. We sort of touched on it. I, I kept coming back to just how recent so many of these developments were. Like for example, with the first Olympic women's marathon, I couldn't believe that it took until 1984 um, to, you know, for Olympic officials to allow women to, to just even to compete, to have the opportunity. There were so many fears about, you know, the how exercise could damage a woman's reproductive health. This one of the things I heard again and again was that vigorous exercise could make a woman's uterus fall out <laughs> or make her ut- her ovaries jiggle, jiggle loose or would, you know, turn her into a man. And I think that really speaks to this. There was the idea of women's strength was really threatening. And um, so there were these kind of cultural correctives, like as women became stronger and, and you know, gained greater access and opportunity to sports and fitness, um, there was, there was always this sort of backlash about, about, um, you know, what was appropriate and what was safe for women. So that was really surprising to me. Um, it was also really interesting just to see like moving into the 1980s, how explicit, you know, women's magazines and other forms of pop culture were in, in sending the message that like every woman should strive to be thin, that if you just, you know, did X, Y, Z, ate less, moved more, followed the, like, followed the workout routine in the magazine, you know, you would have the perfect, so-called perfect body a lot of those messages still persist today, of course, but it's, you know, I think there's more sort of a cultural awareness that that's, it's, it's like not okay to tell a woman, you know, how she should look. So as someone who I was, I was a teenager in the nineties and it's, it's interesting to look back at like those magazines and to understand what shaped my own perceptions about like, you know, what was, what was ideal and what I should be striving for. Yeah. No, I'd love to mention on that, too, because you brought it up before this idea of like there's this contradiction of like using working out to become stronger. But then there's also this like appearance aspect of it. Do you think we're kind of moving away from that and people are finding other motivations for exercise or is that still kind of like underlying? Like, how do you see that play a part in fitness? Yeah, I mean, I kind of see it as like both. And I think, yes, I do think I do definitely think we are starting to move away from it in a way that historically is really significant and quite unprecedented. In the book, I talk about the rise of, you know, body acceptance influencers on Instagram and social media and the increase in body diversity. When you look at like even major exercise wear retailers 
who have started to feature models in a wider array of sizes, you know, that's pretty significant. I also, from interviewing a lot of fitness professionals, you know, I heard that whereas like 10 years ago, they would have motivated their clients by talking about like working toward a bikini body or working off problem areas, you know, they, they cringe when they look back at that now, because the language in much of fitness culture has shifted toward like, you know, fitness for empowerment and self-care. Um, it's not like, of course, it's not, you know, that simple. I, I think a lot of people kind of, you know, aren't fully, don't fully embrace that, that shift because it does feel like, um, empowerment has sort of been, has sort of been commodified and, you know, it's the like strong is the new sexy idea. You, you know, sometimes you wonder like how genuine that is, but, um, but I, I really believe like, you know, it's important to acknowledge the small steps and the progress where it's happening. And hopefully we're at the beginning of a move away from, for women, fitness being sold just as, as primarily as a tool to change the way you look. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I remember those magazines. I would have them and like rip out the workout pages and hang them up. And, you know, I remember those toxic messaging like on uh, Pinterest, you know, I'd have like the motivational messages, which looking back, you know, they're just like cringy to me. But I was like, I don't know if this is just me approaching fitness different and me kind of having that new lens or if it's kind of like the industry as a whole and like women as a whole, you know, trying to get to this place of self-empowerment, which I love that you kind of agree that you, you think that the messaging is shifting that way. I really do. I mean, and I've, I've asked myself that same question, you know, because my own relationship with exercise has evolved too, as I've, as I've gone through different life stages. Um, and I exercise now like almost, you know, primarily for just overall for mental health and emotional health and overall well-being. Um, and I've, you know, as, as I've found too, that when I'm, when I'm active and when I'm feeling really good about how I'm using my body, I focus less on how my body looks. So there's that, it's an interesting kind of just dynamic there, but even though, and you know, social media of course can be such a minefield and there's the other side of it, which can be so toxic that, you know, sort of images that are so, you can be so inundated with if you, if you sort of, um, you know, search for the wrong, <laughs> if you click on the wrong hashtag. But something that really stuck with me in researching this topic um, was, it was something that a body acceptance activist said, which is basically, whereas throughout history, the conversation around how women should look was really kind of one directional, you know, women's magazines, teen magazines, pop culture told women like how this, you know, this is how women should strive to look. And then women, you know, really attempted to follow often in really, really punishing ways. Now, because of the rise of social media, there is more of a two-way conversation. And so, and this person had the quote was something like social media has given power to those who are always sort of, you know, the majority in number, but not in, not in voice, not in power. And so I think that's a really, you know, it's a really important idea. And so many of the, the fitness influencers who are promoting fitness for 
you know, things other than physical appearance and our increasing body diversity would never have gained the influence or stature that they have in kind of the old systems. But with social media, of course, they're able to gain that visibility, which is really huge, I think, for, for people who everyone needs to see themselves reflected, <laughs> you know, in in the world. And I, and I just think it, it has encouraged so many people who would have been um, or and who had been really turned off from fitness culture in the past. Yeah. No, I was just thinking about that too. You know, like all of my coaches growing up were all males and, you know, a lot of the gyms that I go into, like it is all, like majority males will be the instructors or personal trainers, but you're right with social media. When I kind of like have that power, I bring on mostly female guests. Like all of my trainers that come on are female. A lot of my page on Instagram that I look at is female. And so it's so interesting that now I can see that as the majority, even if that's not the case in person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I've thought so much about that too, because like my Instagram, I, you know, you could definitely, you can sort of create your own world <laughs> for better or worse. You know, I think sometimes I've, I've had to check myself because I realize I might have a slightly skewed perception because I surround myself with mostly, you know, women who are promoting things I believe in, you know, but, but on the, you know, the other side to that is that we have that ability now and we're able to curate to an extent, of course, you know, just to an extent, but we're able to curate you know, who we see and who, who inspires us. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I wanted to mention a little bit here um, with title nine, because obviously that was a huge turning point for women in sports and with college athletics growing. And I, I know that the anniversary is coming up for it soon. Um, So I kind of just want to hear your perspective on it. Like, do you think that it was like a huge positive step or do you think that we still have like a lot that we need to work with there? Yeah. Well, it, it was definitely a huge positive step. And, you know, Title IX um, basically granted, it, it, it declared that um, among other things, but that men's and women's athletics in, you know, high school and college sports that were federally funded um, needed to be equal. And they, you know, they deserved uh, equal funding. And so that led to just exponential growth in women's athletics throughout the seventies and eighties. And, you know, I think that's continued today. I, I interviewed so many women for the book who grew up um, pre title nine and who, you know, loved being active as little girls and then kind of hit a wall once, <clears throat> once they entered often middle school, sometimes high school, there were just no, there were no opportunities there were. And, you know, and even when there were like, even if there were some women's sports, they were so limited and women's basketball, for example, like women were only allowed to run to play on uh, half the court, because again, it was believed to be too dangerous for women to run back and forth on the full court. So title and I really changed that. And suddenly, you know, girls who felt strong as, as young girls, you know, there wasn't like a, a, a hard stop on their, on their development. Um, that also helped to fuel the rise of women's fitness. Um, you know, that's really where my research has been. And so what happened was that as high school and college athletes like graduated into the real world, they didn't want to give up being athletic. And so 
they entered, you know, they helped to fuel just the rise of, of fitness, um, particularly with weight rooms. Um, Title IX, you know, basically, liter literally, literally and figuratively opened doors for women to enter weight rooms, which had been either explicitly or kind of implicitly male-only spaces. And then again, when they graduated, they wanted to, many women wanted to keep lifting. Of course, as you say, you know, it's still, it's not like it's a gender equal, you know, haven today, but, um, but it, it's a lot better than it was pre-Title IX. Of course, there's still, you know, I think um, it's for, it, there have been so many recent examples of how um men's and women's sports are not, are still not equal, but, you know, I think that the, um, the progression has been toward equality. And I hope that the, the 50th anniversary of title IX um, will maybe even help to kind of kickstart some of the battles that are currently ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. Someone that grew up post title IX, you know, it's always kind of inspiring to hear from, you know, the changes that were made because of it. So what do you see now as the upcoming issues that you think people are going to tackle with women in fitness? Like what is going on currently and in, in like the next five to 10 years? So in my book, I very intentionally, I titled the first chapter reduce because so much of, you know, the birth of women's fitness was focused on helping women shrink themselves. And the last chapter was titled expand. And I, I've really thought a lot about what that means when it comes to women's fitness. Um, because what I've seen is that our ideas of what a fit body looks like are expanding. Um, our ideas of who fitness is for are expanding. Um, but also, you know, I, I see the word expand sort of as a, as a, a imperative um, to expand who has access to fitness. Um, it's still, you know, largely an activity that is a privilege in, in this country and not a right, you know, having the ability to, to go to the gym or to work out requires time and um, a safe space to move around in and often, you know, money. So um, I've been really encouraged to see that conversations around all these aspects of expanding fitness are happening because, you know, having studied the science behind what movement can do for our bodies, for our mental health, for our just our sense of of social well-being, you know, I I'm a believer in the idea that everyone deserves access to fitness and movement culture. And I think I think we really are, you know, at the beginning of a push for especially for women learning how to harness the benefits of fitness and movement um, and how to separate them from the, you know, the, the push to always be working on our physical appearance. Um, so to be, to be really focusing on the true mental, emotional, and physical benefits. Yeah, no, I love that word for it. of just like expanding what we're already doing. So that is great. Do you have any one last piece of advice you'd like to leave everyone with today? I, I generally like to say like, you know, when I've been asked kind of like, what's, what's my big takeaway <laughs> from this project. Um, and in addition to just having a much deeper appreciation for the opportunities that we have today by studying the women who came before and how much things have changed. I also, you know, 
I personally have kind of learned to embrace moving in ways that feel good at that particular moment in time. And so for some people that might be, you know, pushing your body to its absolute limit, training for a marathon, really, you know, just going hard and at at different times and for different people that might mean just embracing taking like a 30 minute walk around the block every day. So I think that as throughout our lives, you know, the more we can kind of just focus on what, what feels good, what feels right, what feels truly beneficial at that moment and not worry about, you know, not worry about what we did five years ago or meeting these kind of imaginary, like social goals, um, I think can be really beneficial. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Where can people find you, read, let's get physical, all of that? Yeah, thank you. Um, this has been so fun. Um, I am on Instagram at Danielle Friedman Writes, and I share lots of fun kind of vintage retro fitness artifacts there. Um, I'm on Twitter at D Friedman Writes, and you can also visit my website, danielle-friedman.com, and my book, Let's Get Physical, is available wherever books are sold, but <laughs> you can definitely find it on Amazon and bookshop.org. Awesome. I'll link that all below. Thank you, Danielle. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.